0: I uh, I want you to see a little comic up here, Linus. He's building this beautiful sandcastle. He's working on it for hours. And he stands back, and he's admiring his handiwork. It's his opus building. And all of a sudden, this storm comes blowing in and washes it all away. And he's standing there in the midst of this storm. And he says to himself, "I I know there's a lesson in this. I'm just not sure what it is. Have you ever been there? Probably most of us at one time or another have had a sandcastle in our life blown away. Uh, and when we ask, as we're in it, or even afterwards, why why am I being hit with this storm? It just it doesn't quite seem fair. And I want to tell you, we're talking about that today. Many wonderful people who love and serve Jesus, and and they just continually obey Him, but because of life's inequities, uncertainties. Um, Oftentimes our own sin, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I really do uh, cause most of my own problems. But there are problems that other sinners cause and uh, cause me difficulties. And I know it's the same for you that we have absolutely no control over. We get blown away. We get tossed about by a storm. We can't plan for them. And as we're going to read today, neither did the disciples. And it doesn't matter how deeply religious or spiritual you are. Uh, they're unexpected, and they will come. Don't you wish you could audit it? Just kind of sit and watch everybody else experience storms and pains and never you, but it doesn't work that way. Jesus said in his big talk on the mountain, he said, you know what? It rains on the just and the unjust. It rains on the good, and it rains on the bad. And I think Jesus might have started his kingdom talk about that early on because he realized that there was a theology that was probably very prevalent even at that time. The Pharisees really said, you know, blessed people had a good life. And, and I believe that's true to a certain degree. But but there's a bad theology that thinks that because you have a you're you're a good person and you do all the right things, that you're never going to face a storm. And so Jesus makes it very clear that you're going to face storms. You can't just have the roses of the spiritual life without some of the of the thorns. And some might face a storm because you're in God's will, like Job, as you study in the book of Job. Sometimes you're you're going to face the storm because you're like Jonah and you're running from God's will. But when it comes to storms and painful times, I hate to say it, but isn't it true? You really can't prepare for it. You can't throw them on your day timer and go, well, man, maybe next Wednesday, I think I'm going to have, to, I'm just going to kind of get sideswiped by this, this big old storm. And then you can go, Yahoo! that's a good thing and be prepared for it. But you just can't, you can't prepare for them. They just kind of come and they happen storms and painful times. They come in all shapes and sizes to all different kinds of people, and there's emotional challenges, there's physical hardships, there's relational tests. And I don't know, I, I, I want to grow, I want to I begin to believe that I'm the kind of person that would be able to respond to the unexpected and the unavoidable with a sense of faith and belief that I'm, I can walk with Jesus and he's with me and I can trust him through it. And I wanted to share a few things today that I think might, hopefully, would be an encouragement and a help. So let's pick it up in Mark chapter 6. We're going to finish up Mark chapter 6 today, starting at verse 45. It says this, immediately, one of the key words in uh, Mark's gospel that he uses, because he's writing to the Romans and wants to keep things moving. He says immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida. And then he dismisses the crowd. Remember, he just fed the 5,000, had all the baskets left over. And so it's been a pretty taxing day of ministry. It's the end of the day. He sends the people home. This says, after he said goodbye to them. He went away to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, these guys, his disciples are in the middle of the sea. And he was alone on the land. So he's up on this mountain and he's praying. And he saw them being battered as they rode, because the wind was great against them, and around three in the morning he came toward them walking on the sea, and he wanted to pass by them. I don't know why he did that, but for whatever reason it says he wanted to pass by them. but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought was a ghost, they cried out. For they all saw him, they were terrified, and immediately he spoke with them and said, "Have courage, don't be afraid." It is I. And then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were completely astounded. Notice the verbs and the verbiage there terrified immediately. They were astonished. They were astounded. They were afraid. And then this verse, this verse 52, it says, because they had not understood about the loaves referring to the feeding of the eight or nine thousand. And instead, it says that their hearts were hardened. Now, when they had crossed over, uh, they came to land at Gennesaret, and they beached the boat. And as they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized Jesus, and and they hurried throughout that vicinity, and they began to carry out the sick on stretchers to wherever uh, they heard that he was. And whenever he would go into villages, towns, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, and they begged him that they might touch just the tassel of his robe and everyone who was touched was made well, which is just a wonderful kind of a parenthetical statement almost I think uh, when you look at comp- uh, compare and contrast this with the first few verses, because remember Jesus went to his hometown and it says he could do very little and really could only touch a few people here. It says he touched everybody, and they were healed just a just a kind of a precious point of how Jesus operates and last week we we looked at Jesus and how he miraculously fed this crowd of probably eight or 9,000. And John tells us, we used a lot of his story from the same, the passage from the same story last week, and he tells us, that the crowd, literally, they wanted to take Jesus and they wanted to forcibly make him the king. They wanted they wanted him to become their military, their political savior who would remove Roman occupation from the land of Israel and that they would become this pronounced and, and wonderful great nation again that would be free from Roman oppression. But it didn't work that way. See, these people were fermenting kind of this political insurrection. And the miraculous feeding really didn't uh, result in people coming to know Jesus and wanting to see Jesus as the Savior of the world, the suffering Messiah that come to want to do his will. But they said, we're going to take him by king because we want him to do our will. And then it says that Jesus literally just kind of extracted himself, extricated himself from this group of people. Jesus didn't want his followers to be infected with this misguided messianic notion of what he come to do, which was not an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. So he, he dismisses the people after he feeds them spiritually and physically, practically and spiritually. But after he dismisses the crowd, he says to his disciples, he says, go grab that boat. Go cross the way. And I kind of wonder, well, what are you going to do, Jesus? Aren't you going to go with us? You know, it can get kind of stormy at night. And he says, "No, nope, no, nope, I'm going to go. You guys go. I'm going to go up on the mountainside and pray. And as we know, he spent most of the evening literally just praying and talking to his, his heavenly father. So the, the disciples, they get in the boat, and they're going across. And all of a sudden, deja vu. Remember, it was just a, a couple of chapters ago. Remember the first storm they had. Now, Jesus was in the boat with them at that time. And they're terrified. These are sailors. These are men of the sea. And they're literally going under, and they're so afraid. And they finally get the idea, ah, let's go wake up Jesus. And they do, and he speaks calm over the storm um, at the end of chapter 4. So this is really kind of a deja vu moment, except... Jesus isn't in the boat with them this time. So these guys are literally been this. The, the winds are howling, the waves are flying, and, and, and they can't get to where they need to go because they're literally stuck in the middle of the sea, rowing away. They're exhausted, they're frustrated, and stuck. Does that describe anybody here maybe today? And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. He's up there praying, and now he's, he's, he's walking. On the water. And what happens? I mean, they're more terrified. Terrified. Why is that? Well, because here in the passage, uh, it says they thought it was a ghost. It's the, in the Greek, it's the word phantasma. And, and it's where we get our word phantom from, a ghost, an apparition. And they just, you know, they just shock them. They're terrified. So here, this kind of this deja vu thing again where they're terrified. But what happens? Jesus climbs in their boat with them. And all of a sudden, the wind dies down and he speaks to their hearts, calm. They're amazed. They're astonished. And that word astonished can also mean that, you know, they were just really, 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 really confused. They don't know what to think. And then Mark just adds this kind of little addendum that just almost doesn't seem to fit. It says, for they did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. Why are they so amazed and so confused? Well, they really didn't understand who Jesus was yet because it says their hearts were hard. And the significance of the miracle of the feeding that had just happened, you know what? They still didn't get it. Even though they had this courtside seat where Jesus gets these baskets, these two little fish and these, uh, these two little, uh, five little, uh, two little fish and five little loaves and he just begins to pass it out. And, and, and they don't get it. They, they, it, just, it doesn't compute. And, and and it seems that Mark is saying, you know, there was something with our hearts at that time. Do you ever think? I, do you ever I hear people say this sometimes, but do you ever think, oh man, if I would have walked with Jesus back then, I'd have had great faith. I mean, I could have believed Jesus for anything. I mean, look at what they got to see. And what's so interesting is, is it's really clear here. These guys still aren't picking it up. I and mean, we, think, we think our faith is so hard because we don't get to see, touch Jesus and sometimes see some of these great miracles. But consider what they saw in just this explosive, high-octane season of ministry for Jesus. They saw him calm the first storm. They saw him free a demonized man. They saw him raise Darius from the dead. They saw him heal a woman with the issue of blood for 12 years that no doctor could touch or ever help. They saw him multiply the food. Now they see him walk on water. All of these things are only things that God can do. And yet there's this common theme. Do you see it? They watched miracle after miracle and they never got it. That this is the divine one. That Jesus is God. It, it didn't compute. It didn't register. It didn't penetrate their heart until when? After the resurrection and Jesus is resurrected. You know, so many, for so many it's the same Today. We can see things happen. We, we can see life change, transformation happen in somebody's life in a really significant way. And what do people say? Eh, so what? I'm glad religion works for them. Or other people can see that, or they can see other kind of miraculous works or powerful things and manifestations of the life of God. And for them, it's not so much so what, it's now What? Now what's he going to do? Now what can I get? Now what is he going to do for me? And yet, both of those people can never be convinced. And isn't it interesting because that's exactly what happened in their day. Jesus is walking around all of the regions. Some people respond. Some people follow. Some people do that. So what? Is he really the Messiah? Eh, Now what? Come on, give me some more wonder bread and cold cuts. Let's see that walk on water again thing. That was pretty cool. Can you heal me? And so we see people responding then the same way today. But Mark, the author of this gospel, he doesn't want you and I, loved ones, to miss who Jesus is. So he begins to quickly and consistently and constantly pile on the evidence and showing us that Jesus does what only God can do. Why? Well, because he came as God in the flesh. And if that's true, every one of us has to make a decision that if that's true, he really does. He really does deserve our allegiance, our love, everything, the best of our lives that we bring to him. But what I want you to see here, first of all, I want you to see Jesus praying. We've noted Mark before that Jesus shows Jesus praying three times. First, in the beginning of the gospel, Jesus is praying. Now, I love this because he's in this storm, and, it's, and it's almost, he's up on this mountainside, and, it's, and, and, the, and, and the idea, the verbiage almost makes it seem as if he's just watching the brothers there rowing their little brains out, you know, and, and not going anywhere. But he's watching them, he, and, and, and he sends them straight into this storm, into trouble. And then what's interesting, he just simply sits and lets them row there for hours and fight this storm while he's praying, Well, then finally, about 3 a.m., somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning, after they've been rowing their brains out all night, he comes to them. Many of us think that Jesus probably maybe only prayed a couple of times because of this passage in Mark. But I want you to know this. Jesus was a prayer. He, uh, the book of Hebrews literally says, you know what I love about it? This is a great picture of what he does for you and I today. He's not on the mountainside anymore now. It says that he's up in heaven. And he says that he lives to make intercession for the saints, for you and for me. And I think one of the things that's so important because it's so easy to forget it, that we default to this unbelief or this wonder, where's Jesus? And I don't know, I don't know how he operates enough to say, I don't know why he sits in heaven and sometimes doesn't just jump out and do something for us. I wish I knew for me, for you. But it says that he lives to make intercession, that he's literally up there now praying for every one of us, just like he did for these disciples. And you know what? Just like he did for these disciples, a lot of times he'll let us row. He'll let us row. And I wonder if it isn't to bring us to the end of ourselves. But I want you to see Jesus was a, was a man of prayer. In, in Mark 1.35, very early in the morning, it says, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he left the house. He went out to a solitary place and he prayed. Then the second time that it talks where Mark notes that he's praying, it's right here. In this story, the third time is at the end of the gospel where Jesus in Mark chapter 14, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, and he's wrestling with the enemy of his soul and he's wrestling with his call, knowing that the cross is imminently before him in just a matter of hours. Did Jesus only pray three times? No. No, Mark five sixteen tells us that he prayed often. That it says he really he oftentimes would withdraw to lonely places and he prayed. See, Mark is the gospel of action. Remember, they're to he's writing to the Roman people. And he spaces these three times out, I believe, strategically to never let us forget that Jesus consistently prayed. And he says, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on his prayer life but never forget beginning, middle, and end. And whenever we see Jesus praying, it's always at strategic points. It's always at important points. It's always at crossroads in his ministry. And he has to go, and, he's, and, he, and he literally marches in his knees before the Father because he has to make some of these, well, uh, key decisions with him and his Father concerning his ultimate mission of dying on the cross. I suppose I get to challenge you and crowd you and me just a little bit today and say, you know, do do you ever get alone to really pray? How do you respond to your life's big moments? Do you get alone with the Father and pray? When was the last time you really got alone to pray and, and just not do anything else, just just to pray and to seek and and not to have a monologue to god but a dialogue with the father to hear his voice maybe some new and updated marching orders for your life i'm kind of going through that now but i have to confess i haven't i'm not good at it I love to pray on the run. I love to pray while I'm doing other things, driving the car, jogging, playing golf, walking around. I do a lot of prayer grenades. You know, I pull the pin and I throw it up in the midst of all my busyness and I say, Lord, I need your help today. Lord, be with me. Lord, I'm going into this meeting. I need a little bit of wisdom. Lord, I got this counseling. Help me. Oh God, I don't know what to do or where to, you know, do you do that? That's not bad. It's, it's really not bad. I think it's, it's good. Because even in Nehemiah chapter two, you see Nehemiah as he's getting ready to go and make plans to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. You hear him, you see a picture where he's literally praying under his breath as he's gonna meet the king, Artaxerxes. Those aren't, those aren't bad, loved ones. But so often I find myself praying And multitasking, rather than just giving God my undivided attention. Have you ever talked to your wife, or your husband, or even your little kids a lot of times, or maybe your boss, while you're doing your phone, or you're doing something else? Did they appreciate that? They did? (laughs) Yeah, well, don't work for me. (laughs) But we really don't appreciate that. As spouses, we want, we, at some point, we just want undivided attention. That's what Jesus, I think, is showing us here, reminding us. Even the Son of God has to get away to be alone with the Father. Why? Because he had to get away from all the noise. He had to get away from all the press of the crowds and the busyness and all of the other voices that consistently and constantly pressed in to his life. Why? So he could simply hear the Father's voice. Francis Chan wrote a book, it's called The Forgotten God on the Holy Spirit, and he notes two things that keep us from depending on and really hearing the voice of the Spirit. He says two things will keep you from that, comfort and volume. I think we understand the comfort part because, listen, we, we, a lot of us, you know, uh, it's probably really hard to press into the Father and to God when we're not pressed to our... You know, when the bills are paid and everything's coming in, it gets a little bit hard. But he says comfort will keep you from hearing them and pressing in. But he also says noise, the cacophony of just daily life and busyness. We've got voices telling us what to do, where to go. We've got TV commercials. Our lives are so full of noise and activity that we really do struggle to hear that small voice of God, the gentle whisper of the Spirit, the volume of life around us. I'm, I'm, I'm trying in some ways to figure out ways to cut that out of my life. I want to give you the assignment this week. I'm going to continue to throw my prayer grenades and pull the pen, I just have to. Because it reminds me, not just in the big times, but in the little times, that i got to depend on the life of the Spirit for everything that I go into. But I really am going to try and develop a greater time alone with Jesus and to hear his voice, to give me marching orders for the next season of my life. I want to challenge you to do that this week. I want to challenge you to take two two times, set up at least two times where you get alone, where you get set apart to be with the Father. And I don't know if it would be 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour. I don't want to set that up. You figure that out. But would you just do that this week? See what happens. See what you hear. See what you experience differently in your day. Well, the second thing we see is that Jesus, he, he sent them into the storm. Do storms get our attention or What? See, the disciples, they're stuck in the middle of this lake and they're rowing against this strong wind, literally going nowhere. How did they get there? I don't like this. Jesus sent them straight into trouble and he left them there for hours, probably while he was praying for them. But he did come to their rescue. But they'd been going at it all night, hadn't they? See, many think that Christ will for us is comfort or ease or safety. Think of how our prayers often go. What are the two most common prayers that we pray? Lord, keep me safe. Keep my family safe. Lord, bless us. What if God's will is not to keep you safe, to bless you and to make you happy and comfortable? As Flying out of Portland yesterday and I fly a pretty good deal, so I'm kinda of used to turbulence and all of that kind of stuff. But yesterday was weird. It's kind of stormy up there and we're taking off and just to 737 and and I mean that thing was moving and they told us beforehand, they said, listen, it was a little little bumpy and choppy coming in, so it's probably gonna be that way coming out. And I don't get too queasy, but then by the time we finally got above the clouds. I was, just, I was about ready to grab for that little white bag and, and I, had just, I had just eaten before I got on the plane. It was just moving and I just hadn't had that happen for a while. See, storms get your attention. And I don't know that God is so adverse to keeping us out of the storms as we see here that he sends the disciples in him. I don't think your safety and my safety and our comfort is God's highest priority. You know what God's highest priority is for our lives, loved ones? It's really this. And it really should probably be our priority too. It's that we're called to follow Jesus where he leads. And in everything we do, it's to bring glory to his life. And I don't know how much glory it brings to his life just because we walk around fat, happy, and sassy which is a nice thing to do and a nice place to be. But I really don't know, as you study the scriptures, that that's God's ultimate priority for us. But again, our, our Americano Christianity leads us to believe that. And hear me, hear me. I am not averse to being comfortable. Okay, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna sell the home and, and sell off the cars, get rid of my clothes and just become a homeless person to prove that I, I can handle, you know, not being comfortable. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about just in life in general. See, Jesus said this at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. He said this, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. But few are there who find it. And sometimes I think we kind of inverted our Christianity that the validation and the proof that you really walk with Jesus is everything is good. You know, kids are perfect, the cars are new, and the house is beautiful, clothes are good. The more I'm kind of checking this gospel, I don't know if that's Jesus' plan for us. So the age-old question, Jesus, did he cause the storm, or or, or did he just send them into the storm knowing it was coming? I'm not sure, and I don't know that it really matters, because they happened. But I do know this, that it's important that we always keep an eternal perspective on our lives. I'm never surprised when people say that their ultimate goal in life is to have the perfect family, to be happy, have fun, and get what they want. But I also know this, that as soon as something happens to, God forbid, a child, or to another family member, you know, all that stuff really doesn't make a world of difference. It's amazing how quickly our focus can change when we face a storm like that. I mean, they just don't matter. They're no longer all that important. And is it possible for Christ to allow storms to show us stuff in our lives that we need to have exposed? and to learn about. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, he said this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, you know, both ways I win. It's a win-win situation. If I live here, boom, I get to live for Jesus. If I die, wow, well, I, I, I get to go be with him. That's my ultimate joy and focus. Do you really believe that? That for you to live is Christ, that everything you do here, no matter what you face, no matter what you go through, no matter what you experience, that it really is established so that you can bring glory to the, to you, through your life to Him and that people around you can see Jesus. They can hear Jesus because of everything and through everything that you face. Because ultimately, loved ones, that's what it comes down to. Those are the things that I realize that just kind of slapped the slack out of my spiritual sails when there's stuff that I got to face. And we see here, what did the disciples do? They had to, they had to trust Jesus's presence. It says when, when they saw him, there was terror and amazement. And these were their emotions when Jesus came walking on the water and then he climbs into their boat and it says they were terrified and amazed. Jesus, we've been studying now. I think it's like, I think 22 weeks And that's what we see. Jesus regularly did things that left his disciples astonished, amazed, confused, terrified. But Jesus says, you know what, when this happens, and I think that's good, because I I said it a number of weeks ago, we've kind of domesticated Jesus. You know, too too many of us see him as the little guy, the sweet little guy with the long flowing brown hair, and kind of the gone-to-glory look, and you know, very effeminate. And we forget that Jesus was a man. I think it's Hebrews chapter 10 calls him a consuming fire. I don't know if we really see him that way anymore because we've just so domesticated Jesus in our lives. But he says this, when you've got a storm, I come into it. And don't see me as just kind of this effeminate savior, but see me as this man that comes into your boat. And when you're rattled, man, I will calm. I'll calm the seas and I'll calm the storm and the swells within your own soul. See, those words that he says, it is I, are literally I am. And it calls to mind the very divine name that Jesus started using about himself in John chapter eight, when he says, I am the light of the world. And then later he says, I am the bread of life. Where does that come from? Do you remember? It comes from the book of Exodus. When Moses is having this burning bush experience, and he says, who who are you? Who who do I say that you are? And he says, you say, 'I, I am. I am what? I am the present. I am the God of the present. I am the God that is going before you, with you, behind you to lead your people. And Jesus is really saying to these guys, what I want you to see is I'm that God. I'm the God of the Old Testament of your forefathers that they've been looking to, waiting for. See, these times, these storms, these painful experiences, loved ones, lead us to a greater dependence on Christ in his presence. And I don't know about you, but I I sometimes say, I I don't want to have to face times like that. But I don't know that if I don't, I can't become more dependent upon Jesus And until I grow in my dependence, I need to, sometimes I need these things just to crowd me, to help me to focus more on Jesus. I believe one of life's greatest teachers is pain and storms because they will lead you to Jesus, to look to him, to trust in him, and to hear his voice. Or it'll harden your heart because you'll shake your fist and say, why me, God, why me? See, these teach us great lessons about me, about Jesus, about others. In our men's group on Friday, we were talking about some stuff that guys face and praying for one another and praying for guys that are just going really through some difficult times. And uh, one of the guys said, yeah, how many of you here just aren't sleeping because of some different, difficult things and times and inner stuff? And a few of us raised our hands and said, we're not, we're not sleeping. We just prayed for one another. It was just a, a wonderful time. And I read a statement somewhere that reminded me of this after Friday. It says, sleep is a statement of faith. And, and even, even though times are difficult and dark, when we trust Jesus, we can sleep in the midst of storms, in the midst of chaos. Psalmist said it this way, that uh, God is the God of Israel who never sleeps nor slumbers. You know why we can sleep? Because he doesn't. And he's going before us and leading us through it. And see, any storm or tragedy, loved ones, that you have faced, it is your response to that event, not the event itself, that shapes you. See, so many people today say, well, you know, I'm just the way I am because of this or that or the other. I mean, that situation, you know, that divorce, that abuse, that abandonment, that rejection, this loss of a loved one. I mean, fill in the blank. That's the reason that I am the way that I am. And are you saying, Terry, that those things really don't matter and don't affect a person? Absolutely not. I believe they do. But but while you're shaped by the event, you do not have to be tethered to it. And how you respond to that situation will ultimately be the shaping force of your life. See, this is what I believe. Christ comes so that we may trust in him and be healed by him through all this stuff that we go through. But we live in this victimized society that gives us reasons for being the way we are and not ever moving forward. And there's probably nobody in this room that hasn't gone through a whole lot of stuff, or a storm, or a pain, me included, from our past, that we couldn't say, that's the reason I do this, or that's the reason I'm this way. It's because of all that stuff from my past. But hear me, I don't want to be controlled by the circumstances of my life. I I, I don't want to be shaped by the things that affect me. I want to shape my life by my responses to them because all of us if we haven't if we have we still will go through some of these times and we want to make sure that we see God's higher purposes in them see these guys are fearful but as soon as they saw and looked and Jesus entered their storm in their boat guess what everything was calm oh they were still afraid a little bit but ultimately he brought great calm But isn't it interesting that after Jesus speaks calm to them, brings calm to their chaos, they reach the other shore, and what does it say they do? They crossed over, they came to Genesaret, beached the boat, and what do they do? They get out, and they just begin to minister to people. See, the enemy wants every one of us that in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our storm, to quit looking to Jesus. In the midst of our confusion, in the midst of those times when we're terrified and we don't know what in the world is going on, he wants us to quit looking to Jesus and to look at the waves, the storm, the pain, the difficulty, the issue. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Keep looking at me. I'm with you, I'm praying for you. I'm overseeing everything that you're facing. And I just wonder, is it possible, what are the possibilities that these things that we face, these storms that we face, that God wants to use them to give rise to a new sense of faith in our heart, in our lives, and to begin to use those in ministry to others? Is it just a coincidence that at the end of all of these storms that Jesus takes the disciples through, the first thing they do is they face ministry. There's a book, it's called The Window, and in it there's a great story of these two old men are in a hospital room, and and in this hospital room there's only one window, and these guys are both deathly ill. And the guy on the right side, he's the one that gets to see out the window, but he's usually down, they're they're pretty flat because they're just so sick, they're incapable of being up for very long. But about 45 minutes to an hour a day, the one guy over by the window, he'd just, he begged the nurse come in and just lift me up so I can look out the window. 45 minutes to an hour and she'd do it. It's about all he could handle, being upright. But he'd be looking out the window and there was a little friend over here, this old guy, and they'd been in there for a while together and they were really both on on their deathbed, literally they talk and they tell stories about being in the war and they tell about their families and their kids and their grandkids and the jobs that they had and but every day the guy on the right next to the window he, he'd say would you just would you just lift me up so that I can look out the nurse would come in and do it and if she lifted him up the story goes that he would tell his friend oh boy you wouldn't believe the view it's just beautiful there's a beautiful park over here green grass People are playing softball over here and and then there's this big, beautiful lake, and oh you see all these lovers holding hands going around it and and you see oh all the little ducks out there, and they're flying around, and their little mama duckies leading them, and they're you know doing all of this stuff and see, oh, look at these grandparents with their with their grandkids, and this would go on day after day, he would just kind of give this running dialogue because the other guy just wasn't able to get over there and look out well over time, it got kind of. This other guy got kind of upset, and he started kind of getting bitter. He goes, why does he get to look out all the time and get to see all this stuff after all these weeks of hearing the stories? One night, the the guy that was next to the window just got sick, got sicker. And finally, uh, his friend, he was getting so bad, he had to call the nurse in. And the nurse took him out, and they had to do some stuff on him. And uh, literally, he died that night. So this guy was found out the next morning. He was really sad and broken up about it. But he said to the nurse, could, 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 could you move me so I can see and be in that bed over there so I can look out the window? So the nurse says, sure, sure. So they moved him over there. And later in the day, he said, nurse, could you lift up my bed so I can just look out for a few minutes? And, he, and the nurse comes over and lifts it up. And he's looking out. And all of a sudden, you know what he sees? He sees a roof, and he sees a cement wall. And all of a sudden, it hits him. This guy cared enough for me that he just wanted to give me a glimpse every day of a little bit of life beyond the death that we're experiencing now. And I thought, you know, isn't that really what our lives are about? In the midst of death, in the midst of decay, in the midst of just all this stuff that goes on, loved ones, that's what we get to do. We get to bring a little hope. We get to bring a little perspective. We get to bring a little life to death. We get to bring a little bit of light to darkness, to people's lives. And I wonder if it isn't oftentimes some of these dark seasons of our life, these difficult times in our life that prepare us and mold us and shape us and lead us to be able to do that. Because that's what Jesus does for us. It was in the darkest night of his life in that place called Gethsemane that he said, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to speak life and health and give my life for these people. So when we go through these storms, when we have pain, never forget, Jesus wants to work in you and through you.